Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. This is the Pitchfork Review. I'm Pooja Patel, the Editor-in-Chief. And today I want to start the show a little differently. So close your eyes, sit back, and listen. That clip is from a song called To Remain, To Return, and it's a meditation on longing, mourning, and hope. The track is the first release from Love in Exile, a project created by three insanely talented musicians, Aruj Aftab, Vijay Iyer, and Shahzad Ismaili. And I'm lucky enough that all three of them are joining me in the studio right now. Welcome. Thank you. What's happening? It is so exciting to have you here in our studios, but let me first properly introduce everyone here. Vijay Iyer is a pianist, a composer, a MacArthur Genius winner, and a Grammy Award nominee who we have called, quote, one of the best in the world at what he does, which is to constantly redefine contemporary jazz. Shazad Ismaili is a self-taught multi-instrumentalist who has picked up basically every instrument and become a go-to musician, composer, engineer, and producer. He's played with legends like Laurie Anderson, Lou Reed, John Zorn, Bob Dylan, and Yoko Ono. And Aruj Aftab is a Grammy Award-winning singer, composer, and producer, known for her blend of traditional South Asian music, songwriting, and jazz. Her last record, Vulture Prince, was a best new music and one of our favorite albums of 2021. So Love and Exile is your first project together, and as artists, you come from pretty different musical and historical lineages. I'm wondering, how did this project really get started? So Vijay, while he has his mainstay projects going on, he kind of puts together these like super groups sort of I think all his friends are just really talented musicians like we've performed with like Taishan and you know Ambrose and and More Mother and Aja and Linda like it's ridiculous right I mean just all stars yeah. in my mind just like musical geniuses and then he had this other group with Rafiq Bhatia uh, Himanshu, Casa Overall, and then, you know, we kind of on the fly just from backstage, one of those gigs, like, played a little thing together and it felt really great. Mm. And then in a similar capacity, there was this gig at the kitchen that Vijay had uh, where he invited Shazad to come and sit in on a similar thing that we were already doing. Mm. Um, and then Shazad kind of showed up. I learned today 
uh, from another interview because now we're going to be asked uh, this question a lot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> we're married, you know. It's like, how did you guys meet? <laughs> um, through friends. Tinder? No. <laughs> <laughs> At a bar. Yeah. And then, so, yeah. And then Shazad just kind of like, you know, last minute, you know, man comes through and is playing. <laughs> uh, and, and then we played that show. And I feel like... I felt a little combative with the audience because the energy was so like buzzy. It was so expectational. Mm-hmm. I was like, fuck this. I feel stressed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, they're all their little beady eyes, like beady-eyedly <laughs> looking at us. And I was like, oh my God, we don't even know what we're going to do. So, you know, I kind of just said something and then we played for 25, 30 minutes and it just felt so fantastic. It just like yeah. clicked. Everything. We were just, we were clicking. Mm. And, um... It was the formation of something. Yeah, we really felt it. Yeah. I feel like a part of making music together is kind of adapting to one another, figuring out the style within which way people work, um, the personalities that occupy the space in a room. And is there anything that you had to learn about one another, like how you work together, how you think how you make music, how you're creative. Definitely. There is a tremendous amount of like wonderful learning moments. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, For example, I very subtly uh, stand next to Vijay's seriousness and like pensive focus and I'm touched by it. And and then it causes me to look for it in myself. Like Mm -hmm. it's this thing where Mm -hmm. you come to a very silent viewer of a film Mm -hmm. who's sitting next to you and then you become silent and you start to really zone in on what mm-hmm. the thing is that you're both viewing. So as I spend time with Vijay, I start to learn that space and walk towards it myself, which is maybe atypical because I'm often a little bit jovial or like um, ready to just <laughs> jump towards mm-hmm, something. Mm-hmm. And then with Aruj, um, the way Aruj very gently but very intentionally creates community with the people mm-hmm. that she works with mm-hmm. was has been really beautiful for me to witness and to want to learn from. Mm-hmm. And I can think about specific moments. The one that came to mind was we had all gone out to the desert to play Coachella um, like weekend <laughs> two or whatever. Is that how you say that? I never no, knew that. Yeah. It's definitely <laughs> Coachella. <laughs> I insist on it the sounds like some like, yeah, it, it sounds feels like, like some, a Coachella for sure. When you get there, it's definitely it's a, one of those things. It sounds like some saying. part of the lower digestive tract. <laughs> I'm trying not to spit out my water. <laughs> so we were there in the desert. Um, and so we were in this little Airbnb house and we were sharing space together. And... Aruj had been spending time with some sort of bottle of something or other, and then um, <laughs> <laughs> just getting to know it, yeah, just, just, <laughs> just making friends, just in proximity to it. And then she turned to me and she said, "Listen, you know that ring? If you get it wet, there's going to be like a ring of this kind of greenish thing, but don't worry about it because it will, it will, you'll, it'll eventually go away." <laughs> I just bought what? some. I just bought some. Like, or gotten some really special ring, which had a kind of silver uh-huh. that, when it gets wet, when you pull it off, it's green. Uh-huh. And something about that really sticks with me because something about the care <laughs> of of really essentially still towards a stranger uh-huh. and the passing of information <laughs> and the sharing of what it is to be here together. Uh-huh. That's a big part of what community is. Is you say to someone, "These are things I know." Mm-hmm. 
And that's just a small thing and maybe silly, but still it's that it's that feeling underneath that these are things I know. Yeah. And I want to give them to you so that your passing through this life is easier. Right. Yeah. That's auntie behavior. Is what yeah. that auntie is. behavior. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, this brother doesn't know what's about to happen. <laughs> he thinks he's going to be marked for life. He's going to be green. Aruj, I do feel like your kind of entrance in the last couple of years to a bigger audience, mm-hmm. um, I would say to many of the people who work at Pitchfork, like they call themselves Aruj Aftab stands. Like they are fans. Um, yeah. And there is this accessibility that feels tangible to Mm -hmm. a lot of younger listeners and a lot of, I would say, women and a lot of Mm -hmm. people of color. Um, And there are critics who are huge fans of jazz who don't feel like they are versed enough Mm -hmm. or they're not qualified enough Mm -hmm. because there is something that is very austere about it or feels elevated about it. I hear Um, you. I was struck in, one, noticing how Aruj and Vulture Prince really opened a mm. gateway for a lot of younger people to embrace the music. And then secondly, just like Vijay had done this 5, 10, 15 with us talking about the music that inspired him over the course of his life. And he mentions Star Wars and he mentions <laughs> a tribe called Quest and he mentions Prince. Um, mm-hmm. And I know, for example, Shazad has been influenced by U2 and Tracy Chapman and Aruj was playing covers of the White Stripes and Oasis. <laughs> and, and there's something that feels, I think, um, highbrow or cerebral around compositional music or jazz or contemporary classical that has become a b- barrier to access mm. for for music lovers even. Mm. And I'm curious, one, if you see that at all or if you recognize that, and two, if there is music outside of, you know, those kind of like vague, large genre markers that you feel are influencing your work today. I will also sometimes walk around and think, oh, I'm not meant to really have an opinion about that because I don't I don't know its history. Mm-hmm. I don't know its background mm-hmm. and where it sits. But that's right because certain records, Vulture Prince, as you're mentioning, make you feel like, well, I'm emotionally taken, so I'm going to speak about this regardless of whether I think I need to know anything about where its place is. Right. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing about music, though, which I think we all experience as performers is that it doesn't need explanation once people are in the room with it, you know, because it just happens to you. Mm-hmm. It happens yeah. to your body. It reaches into you. It passes through you. And it is also something that people are doing together. So there's this sociality to it or this, like, interdependence that we all have as bodies in a room. So then it's, like, not even about whether you know what you're supposed to know to receive it authentically I mean, I find myself always having to remind people, even about this music that's called jazz, is that that was and still is music that people just walk up to and enjoy, you know? Mm-hmm. I want to borrow that phrase that you said and try and maybe write some music and then title it This Music That's Called Jazz or This Music <laughs> That's Called Jazz. <laughs> I, I also, I wanted to add that I was, I felt very lucky 
to get to play uh, several times with Milford Graves and be in his company and spend time with him. And he was very anti the idea that you need to be educated to experience something well. And he went out of his way to say, listen, if you want to get a sense of whether you're doing anything as a musician, make sure you go out and play for people that know nothing about what Mm -hmm. where you're coming from or what your music is meant to be, Mm -hmm. how it's meant to be treated. And then he would go on to say, for example, I would go to Japan and if I played and if I was giving it, then they would respond. And they didn't need to know anything about who I was or what the context was. Mm -hmm. And please make sure you do that as a young person, as a person learning. Take yourself out of the context of a tonic or a symphony space where there's an audience that's that has an expectation of what you'll be doing. Right. Did you ever see that film of Milford Graves and Min Tanaka performing for these the, uh, the autistic the, I mean, yeah the, autistic yes. children in oh, Japan? Oh my God! Yes, definitely. That is so incredible. Just the way he he connects with them at such oh. an elemental level, and they all gather around and become part of this experience together. It's basically like he's speaking directly to their to their souls, you know. I think that we've been fortunate that in the last few years, like, writers have stopped psychoanalyzing the thing and, like, have stopped really demanding artists to explain what it is, you know. And, I mean, I was caught in that from, like, 2015 where they're like, it's Sufi music, Arusha is a Sufi. I'm like, I don't even know... <laughs> what that is supposed like I have met Sufis and it's a whole other thing and sure. I'm definitely not that you know mm-hmm. so we, what, and I do keep seeing that that keeps getting mm. like put with my name and similarly and it's irritating mm-hmm. it's so boring where people want to define what it is so that it makes it easier for them to digest it's like don't you have like an open mind of your own to just you know just listen and I think in the last four or five years collectively you know, critics, musicians, listeners, we have, for some reason, moved into a better space where Mm. it is more, like, it's fluid, it's non-binary. People are focusing on, like, this is the thing that I heard, did it move me Mm -hmm. or not, Mm -hmm. right? And that's kind of what I had been trying to do with Vulture Prince, like, with the next whatever music I wanted Mm. to make. I was like, I really need to make a thing that is more about, like, uh, your 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 honesty, your personal, you know, mm. rather than like all this genre stuff, you know, mm. um, it's like super counterintuitive and counterproductive because we're so many things <laughs> at right. this point. Last night, my beloved was like the moon, so beautiful, so beautiful like the moon. So beautiful like the moon. So beautiful. It is dif- I mean I obviously think about this all the time. <laughs> um I think one of the the meaningful things of genre and give me this is that it is useful from the eyes of a historian. For the from the eyes of exploring like canons mm. like historical lineages in music almost like creating different maps for you to explore and and that is where genre feels useful you know we just did this huge project 
revisiting the 90s and all the best music <laughs> of the 90s. And even then it was like, is this album rock or pop or R&B or like what what are we doing here and why? Yeah. And why was it canonized this way? And so much of that, particularly in older decades of music, is a lot rooted in misogyny and the That's industry right. and racism and yes. all of these other ways of canonizing music by genre that are in fact about other things than the music itself. Right. I always try to encourage people to think about community rather than genre or mm-hmm. about networks of people. Because mm-hmm. then it, you know, it starts to work against the industry kind of genre creations, which are like ways of dividing and conquering, I guess you might say. But like when you really look at it from the ground up, you know, I was just watching this little clip of an interview with Quincy Jones this morning, and he was talking about the opening string line on Don't Stop Till You Get Enough mm-hmm. from Off the Wall, mm-hmm. which, like, mm-hmm. Michael Jackson wanted to take off. And I guess he's like, well, obviously, it's a good thing we kept it on. Mm-hmm. But then, like, you know, <laughs> what did Quincy Jones do before that? He played trumpet and arranged for big bands. And he, like, was Ray Charles's music director. Mm-hmm. You know, and a bunch of the musicians on those records, Off the Wall and Thriller, played with Miles Davis. So there's always been this kind of like, right, mm-hmm. just like a very open way of interacting and, and creating together. And genre emerges from that, you know, yeah. so it's not, it's not the opposite. It's not something that musicians are trying to embody or trying to fulfill. It's really something that emerges from what they do. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, obviously there are so many jazz greats, Farrah Sanders, John Coltrane, who are influenced by South Asian music, who have used it in their work. Do you feel like your work carries on in a lineage that follows that? Absolutely. Like, I mean, I always have to remind people that it's not just about a bunch of nerds playing in odd time signatures and stuff like that. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also like this, you know, the Coltrans, John and Alice, what they did and why. Why did they do it? Like, what was that about, you know? And some of that was about a sense of common cause, you know? If you think about, like, the moment in the 1960s, not to be, like, too didactic about this, but, like, why was South Asia on the radar at all? Mm -hmm. It was partly because the civil rights struggle was influenced by the independence struggle, mm-hmm. right? It's partly because black people in the United States were looking outside the West for a sense of cultural identity and grounding. A lot of it was about Islam, you know, the role of Islam and the particular versions of Islam that were adopted by black people in the United States. So that was a, a big part of it is that they weren't just like 
being like cultural appropriators, right? right? It was actually this sense like, well, this has something to do with our purpose on this planet, Mm -hmm. you know, that that we have linked fates, you know. That to me is the important part of it, I think, that there is some kind of journey we're all on together that is interconnected historically. We all have something to say to one another. And now it's sort of generations deeper into that conversation in the sense that some of us grew up here, you know, and have this very different sense of a relationship to that homeland. And, you know, for me, like, I don't even, my parents are from an India of 60 years ago. Right. So like the India of today is not, I don't identify with that at all whatsoever. So for me, it's more about this larger aggregate of South Asians and the diaspora and what we have to say to one another and what our place is in the world right now, our interconnectedness, you know. I'll say that I'm interested in reconnecting that cut cord for me. When I was younger, there was such a strong point of view from family to not become a musician and not mm-hmm. not, li- not live and work in the arts. Mm-hmm that my way forward was to just cut the cord. Not so starkly, like there was still a great deal of love, a great deal of time with family, but I was cutting the cord of connection in a way to say I'm from here and I never need to reach towards that. Mm. And now in playing with both Vijay and Aruj, in thinking about ancestors and ancestry, mm. I'm, I'm excited about reconnecting. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I don't know if that appears in the music necessarily in any way, but it's just a personal space. And so maybe it does in that sense. You know, I think it's been an ongoing question for decades for all of us, I think. And even, you know, even your earlier question about how we all connected, it's not just by happenstance, because there was also this sense like, okay, we're in this together, whatever this is. Mm -hmm. And like, I even, you know, Shazad and I were we played in Burnt Sugar together 20-something mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. Like when he first moved here, I remember he, I never knew what instrument he was going to play next, you know. And I felt like, okay, well, the, I'm, in, I'm in this with him, whatever the, the, this is. But some of it is like the diasporic condition of right. trying to figure out why we're here. Right, you know? right. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Like if music has a relationship to consonance and dissonance, and if the three of us have felt some very similar dissonances Mm -hmm. throughout our lives, and then we sit in an instrument that makes vibration, do we then reach for those dissonances together? Right. Because they're there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it is it is true that we we have a shared experience in although it, we don't like to point towards it as the main thing, but it is there because if I tried to play the same sort of melodic uh, things <laughs> with somebody else, they'd be like, I don't, I you know, like mm-hmm. I just don't even hear that. It's like some <laughs> white European piano player is not going to be able to go with me mm-hmm. where we're going. Like we where we go, we go there because we've we recognize that those places mm-hmm. um, and we go there musically because uh, we're brave and we know how to, you know, and we're not, so there's that, you know, mm-hmm. like, I mean, I think that I've never had any like 
Pakistani or South Asian classical training in music. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've inherited it, right? Because our culture is so steeped in music and melody that you can't really, it's hard to not. But the only thing that I really learned and studied was jazz, right? And like, thank God that it's so modal and it and it has this kinship with mm-hmm. the way that we make music in South Asia, that mm-hmm. it kind of fit, you yeah. know, um, that again is because of Coltrane. Really, <laughs> exactly. You know? Yeah, it's right. I think that would have happened quite the same. And, and Coltrane and those guys. So the shared thing has been going on, yeah. right? Know, in both directions. In both directions, yeah. uh, as Vijay put it more factually and eloquently <laughs> earlier on. But yeah, so I think that there's. It's all quite uh, intentional in a way, even though it, we we are portraying it as a wonderful like sort of improvisation but it is all very there yeah can i let me ask one one question because i know we have parents in the room um (laughs) 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 but i do i i am i am curious you know we started this conversation talking about how the idea of like learned learned skill or an education can be so boxed in um and I, you know, I saw a photo of you with your daughter playing music, and <laughs> I, I've seen actually both of you. I think I've seen photos of both of you playing music with your daughters. And like, what do you hope to teach them in a different way, or what do you hope to to change about the way that we access music and and grow about learning music from a really young age as musicians? I don't think I'm. Doing anything different in a sort of larger ev- ev- evolve the culture forward kind of way, but in a very individual way, yeah. I'm thinking about a few things. Um, I feel like I've come across stories somewhere of people who grew up with parents that were in recording studios. <laughs> and the stories were typically something like the kid grew to hate the recording <laughs> studio <laughs> as a space yeah. because it was a place where the kid was typically put in the corner with some games and told to be really quiet. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I've consciously taken my daughter downstairs to the studio often. And while we walk in the door, I, I let it be a space of play from the moment we come in to the moment we come out without any goal whatsoever. And so thankfully she's really embraced that. We walk in, she meets the people who are recording. She feels comfortable to interact with them. And sometimes she's jumping on the couch to the song being mixed Sometimes she takes out a notepad and starts making uh, music notes Mm -hmm. and then runs around and hands them to each person (laughs) and says, this is the piece you guys are doing now. (laughs) So she has this feeling of this is a place that I can be in, that I can be uh, myself in and be loud or or like interact with, inhabit, and then that there's no no teleology to it. Mm -hmm. Right. And then the second thing that I – that about it is – from when she was very, very young, I would have her in a carrier on my chest, and then I'd put an acoustic guitar in front of both of us, and we'd go take long walks together. <laughs> and she would drape her little hands over it and play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I tried to make the engagement with music be like a fish in water, that it's mm-hmm. a part of moving through the world. One time, I was playing drums with this fellow, Gray McMurray, for his solo show in South Brooklyn in some bar. And I came in with Annika, but I had this big can of, can of goose jacket. Yeah. So the audience didn't see that I had this little girl. <laughs> and I went, I walked back to the drum set, sat down the drum set, unzipped the jacket, 
and started handing her drumsticks while I was also playing. <laughs> oh, my God. And so we were both just playing with Gray. Incredible. And so that's a, I think those are some ways I can answer that question. Yeah. And <laughs> I think someone actually did. They were, like Someone told me that. They were like, you're playing with Shazad? I remember going to a gig, and he just had like a baby strapped to his, <laughs> just a a baby. Baby strapped to his chest, and the baby was playing baby. the drums, and he was just sitting at the drum set, and this, that was the gig. The gig was going on. Like, that's Shazad. I was like, yep, that sounds like Shazad. Just any baby. Baby. He found a baby on the street. <laughs> yeah. so funny. I haven't given my daughter uh, those kinds of experiences quite, but I have, you know, she has witnessed a life in music. And I think like part of maybe what each of us experienced in our own way mm. was that a life in music was taboo or was mm. like that's a, true. a yeah, stupid idea or yeah, like yeah. the wrong thing. Totally, that's right. And yeah. so just to be able to make it normal and be like, okay, I'm going to go play some concerts. You yeah. can mm-hmm. come if you want, you mm-hmm. know. So, like, just I think her acculturating to that in a way that's not demanding or kind mm-hmm. of prescriptive, but just normalizing, you mm-hmm. know, something that maybe in our community has not been normalized. Yeah, that's so right. Much. Yeah, I, I mean, to this day, my mom is just like, what is it that you do <laughs> yeah. again? Yeah, that's right. yeah. well, I played with Yoko Ono in uh-huh. England once, so my mom just walked right up to her and she said, so what do you do again? And I then they it. were just talking. <laughs> yes. My mom was straight up like, that's- so... You um. So, are you singing? Mm-hmm. Are you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um. Well, first artist in the studio. Yeah, Whoa. that's right. Hey, hey, we cracked the seal. Yep. Arush, Vijay, and Shazad, thank you so much for hanging out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for making time. The Pitchfork Review is a production of Condé Nast. You can read about Love in Exile on pitchfork.com. Catherine Fenolosa at Rococo Punch is our senior producer. James Trout at Rococo Punch is our technical producer. Our engineer is Gabe Quiroga. Ryan Domble is our showrunner, and Jessica Gramulia is our music supervisor. I'm Pooja Patel. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.